Good morning. Good morning. How's it going? Yeah, it's going pretty good. I notice you have you're holding your mic today. Yeah, so I'm still back in California visiting family. So I'm holed up in my in-laws' office and without my all my recording equipment. So going a little ad hoc today. <laughs> you look like a little bit like DJ Derek. Yeah, it's like I feel like a television host right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you going to ask me some like game show questions? <laughs> yeah. Speaking of game shows, have you heard of the app HQ? No. So friends of ours told us about this, but it's basically a, it's interesting. It's a new app. I think they started back in August. And I think it was one of the founders, co-founders of Vine that started this. They raised like a million bucks, created this app. And it's basically a trivia app that is live two times a day. So it just like sends you a push notification. It's at like noon and six Pacific time uh, every day. And there's usually at least a thousand dollars up for grabs, 12 questions. And it's like a host comes on and he's speaking live and presenting the questions. And there's like real time comments, which is, you know, obviously full of junk. So you hide those. But I don't know. Recently, there's been about 220,000 people online every time. So it's like an interesting new app business model. I mean, I don't know if I can call it a business, but I had not seen something like that before. Have you been playing it? Have you tried it? Yeah, it's kind of addictive. <laughs> it's been interesting. Nice. What's up with you in uh, in Drip World? Are you doing any work while you're out on the West Coast? Uh, it's been a little bit like quasi working. This week, I've been doing about half time. When I visit family, it's always usually for a two week stint. And, you know, calendar gets packed full with lunches and dinners with friends and family and stuff. So been kind of like filling in the cracks with with some work, trying to do a little bit of more high level thinking work and less like trying to write actual code because my time's kind of split up a bit. Makes sense. It's been a, a light week for me, actually. Well, like Thanksgiving was last week and then got got back to things this week. But I've kind of just been moving forward on the code quality stuff and sending out challenges. And uh, that's kind of it, actually. Okay. I occasionally jot down notes in my notebook on like things to discuss on the podcast. And I have uh, several of them that we could uh, dive into. Yeah, peel, peel it off. All right. So one of the high level things I've been thinking about is now that we're past Black Friday, team structures are going to shift around a little bit um, on the drip product side. Well, one, um, one quick thing, though, like how did that go, yeah. by the way? Oh, yeah. I think I mentioned a little bit about it last time, but uh, we we yeah, we officially made it through Black Friday and Cyber Monday unscathed. Awesome. So, Congrats. Yeah. Well done. And it turns out like we... I think we weren't totally sure whether Black Friday or Cyber Monday would be which one would be higher volume. And it turned out Cyber Monday was higher volume, but we were all kind of focused predominantly on Black Friday because that was, you know, during holiday time, a lot of folks taking time off, visiting family and stuff like that. So, yeah, we made it through both days. Um, no queue backups. The delivery's going fast. So, yeah, feeling really good. Like during this time leading up to it, we've I allocated a bunch of engineering resources to kind of just shoring up and making sure that uh, that we were all prepared. So now one or two engineers are going to be shifting back to um, our core product team, which is kind of the team that is responsible for adding new features to the product. So that leaves us with, I think, about eight or nine, depending on how you count it, engineers, designers, JavaScript folks um, who are going to be working on features. So I've been thinking about 
this is this team is larger than it's ever been and what's the best way to to structure our work to make sure we keep shipping fast it's a, probably a little bit too big to consider it one team so most conventional wisdom seems to be like three person teams works well i've seen four person teams time to time when when you need four different roles or functions represented on the team so but giving that a bit of thought and one article that was published recently on Medium uh, was an article called Running in Circles by uh, Ryan Singer from Basecamp. And they're obviously a company that I admire heavily and look up to. They've been at it for over 15 years, still shipping product. So, uh, yeah, I thought I'd wa- highlight a few of the takeaways from that that article. He, he starts out kind of calling out Agile and kind of the, the blind... I guess, following of agile methodologies. And this is kind of like the money quote. He says, people in our industry think they stopped doing waterfall and switched to agile. In reality, they just switched to high frequency waterfall. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The spirit of agile is good, but um, in practice, I think there's some, there's some nuance to, to consider when you're, when you're thinking of adopting agile methodologies. And, And what's the crucial difference between those two? I think traditional agile is less amenable to mutable requirements like you tend to lock in what works going to happen in your sprint and then less likely to be changed based on what you've learned as you start to build features and what you're learning from customers and what's coming in from the market. Um, at least that's kind of how I, how I interpret what he's saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's saying that short sprints don't make a process agile. It's the ability to change them as you go. Yeah, Exactly. So he kind of like buckets them into three different points. And the first one is, well, first highlights that, of course, working in cycles is something that works well for Basecamp. And they have a separate blog post, I think we've mentioned it on the podcast before, about about kind of their process of, of how they work in six-week cycles, which feels long to me, but they works for them. Six-week cycles and then two weeks at the end to kind of tie up loose ends and plan for the next six-week cycle. And they kind of bucket features into like large batch projects that maybe will take the full six weeks and then smaller batch projects that that are, you know, less than the six week um, time frame. Point number one is deliberate resource allocation. This is basically trying to eliminate as much distraction from the people who are working on things dedicated to that cycle as possible and keeping teams really small. So Basecamp adheres to the three three person team, one designer, two programmers and giving that team autonomy to figure out how to accomplish their tasks um, is, is kind of the first point. Meaning like freedom to flex the requirements and that freedom from distraction of other things? Is that the idea? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And, and another point is like, for example, if you have bugs that need to get fixed, you know, try to be deliberate about saying like, okay, we're going to allocate a certain amount of time for this team to work on bugs. And Rather than just letting things creep in and all of a sudden you don't realize where all your time has gone or, you know, if bug fixes are a thing that you know you need to be working on in the next couple of weeks or whatever, then be sure to allocate resources towards that and not just let that be an amorphous thing that that eats away at people's time. Second point was um, mutable requirements. So um, this is something that I think... I've realized is pretty important to our process is like we try to project how a feature needs to look, but with, until you get it in front of customers or potential users, you don't really know what the right implementation looks like. 
we can try to figure out when we're wireframing things or mapping things out what the best implementation of a feature looks like. But until you actually start implementing it, you don't know you don't know where the pain points are going to come in the actual implementation. You know, one thing they call out is like a programmer could struggle to refactor a bunch of JavaScript just to make this one little control function well on the feature. And that could end up wasted burning a bunch of time when it would have been perfectly acceptable to just say like, oh, we don't need that to be a drop down. That can just be a toggle switch and you don't have to invest all this time. So, but I think if you don't have engineering feeding back into the product decision loop, then you could end up with product being adamant that, no, this is the way it should be implemented. And and that ends up spiraling out of control on the engineering side. Totally. I've actually never worked in an environment where that wasn't the case. Like I've, I feel like I've always had that ability like mid coding to be like, actually, this is like way too hard. Let's try something simpler and, and it'll save us a bunch of time, which I feel fortunate for. Is that sort of how you work as well, your teams? Yeah, that's how Drip has always been. I think because, um, you know, Rob and I are both engineers. And since we're kind of the ones responsible for also for the product direction, which is not always the case, some, you know, some some organizations have engineering siloed away from product and the two kind of interface with each other as like, you know, independent units in the company. And I think that that is a not a good way to structure it. <laughs> it's never been the case for Drip, but um, it's just a nice reminder that like as we build out our product organization, you know, and add more product people uh, to the team, we should not be, you know, trying to silo these two. They should they really need to be connected. And actually, it's a it's a model where um, kind of on the extreme end, uh, I think David Cancel talks a bit about um, how his engineers essentially function as product people too. So engineers are talking directly to customers. They have product people on the team, but those product people are primarily responsible for looking out ahead into the future and trying to figure out what market opportunities are there in the next six months or something. Whereas the the um, designers and engineers kind of spearhead the day-to-day product work and interfacing with customers. I don't think you can just immediately jump there. Like we don't have engineers regularly talking to customers um, because I think that's a it becomes a tricky like time allocation challenge. Like how can how can we allow our engineers to keep their flow and keep moving forward on features when also they have this responsibility to talk directly to customers? I don't think it's certainly not impossible, but it's a it's an interesting challenge to to think through on on how to accomplish. I feel like the more layers there are between the people actually using the stuff and the people building the stuff, the worse your stuff will turn out generally. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. The same is pretty true for Drip. I mean, our the distance between our engineers and customers is maybe only one layer separated most of the time, whereas I think other organizations probably could have many more layers in between there. So mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like one is probably fine and doable, but yeah. as you add more, you're you're in danger zone. Yep, for sure. And so that, that was point number two, mutable requirements. Point number three is he calls uphill strategies. And this is kind of all about thinking of tasks in terms of, of like a bell curve distribution of difficulty. Like early on, you have a lot of unknowns and it's kind of impossible to even estimate, to put story points on a lot of tasks because you don't know what you don't know. So um, you have to leave time at the beginning of a, of a task to just suss out the, the biggest risks and the biggest unknowns with it. And then as you learn more, that feeds back into clarity on what should actually go into the first iteration of the feature. 
that that matches my experience really well. At Thoughtbot, at one point, we built a project management tool for software projects uh, that we wanted to use with our clients. And it had point estimates in it. And over maybe like an 18-month period, we kind of realized like these are just not worth it. Like these, they're, they're always wrong and sometimes wrong by a lot. And they give the impression that you can be basically right and that you can basically schedule and plan things. And that's kind of not really true in practice, which feels crazy. I don't know. It's almost embarrassing to be in a field where it's like, how long will this take? And we're like, well, we can't really tell you. It's like, but like every other field would give me an estimate. And like, we're like, yeah, it's a three to 12 weeks or something, depending on what we run into along the way. Because I think a lot of people think of software development as a scientific process where, you know, you have a certain bullet list of functionality you need to add and therefore you can assign a time value to each bullet point and add them up and get a reasonable estimate but it's in practice that's never how it works it's i think it's because it's a creative endeavor it's a complex system there's a lot of moving parts there's a lot of things to consider you know there's life in production there's there's um design there's the medium you're working in html there's on and on the list goes on and I've always found like the most the most high value features are the ones that are pretty impossible to estimate and you can I, we can usually estimate how long it's going to take to do a minor bug fix if we there's like almost zero unknowns and we can almost envision in our head the lines of code that need to change then you can put an estimate on that but how valuable is that really you know Right The other thing that's hard to predict is what it's going to be like once you've actually got it So even if you could accurately predict the time required to build the eight things you think you need to build, once you've built those things, you're kind of like, this isn't actually what I wanted. Or like, this, I thought this would be good, but it sucks. And I I didn't anticipate that this would be annoying. And so it's hard to estimate the individual tasks. And it's hard to understand what it will be like once you're there. And so like both of those things need to flex during development. Yep, exactly. Or we just suck at this and this is actually really easy. And you know, like... (laughs) Like maybe yeah, in like 20 years, humans will be so much better at this. We'll have like figured out a lot of things and have built better processes and such. And they'll be like, man, we used to be flying in the dark. Yeah. We were so, so dumb back then. But I don't, I don't know. I, I'm skeptical. We would, I think to, to get there, we would have to machine learn away creativity. And I think maybe we'll get there someday. But like if you could distill it down to an algorithm that is deterministically able to produce a feature that's both usable and matches a spec, then maybe we'll get there. But I think that's that still requires uh, that kind of that intangible human taste and creativity that uh, that computers can't do. Would you guess that today projects are more accurately estimated and more on time than 20 years ago? Do you think we've made progress here? Hmm. I don't honestly know. I don't know. If there's a graph of like, estimate quality uh, over time what is the slope like the marketing would have you believe that we're getting better at it i guess like people that are like proposing certain methodologies are saying like this is going to make us better at this and we didn't have this this methodology before so it should be sloping in the down should be getting better but is it i don't know well i think that's certainly the agile theory right is like as your team, that like the more work a given team does together, the more you're able to basically use historical data to compute what your forward-going velocity is going to be. Like theoretically, it's supposed to get more accurate over time as a team works together. But I just can't. I don't think I that's true seen it in practice. 
Is that not true? Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I don't think it's... I mean, anecdotally, I don't think that's true. Like, because of the, the same problems that we've been talking about. Like, yeah, we know how long it took us to implement this that last feature, but that last feature now makes everything else more complex to implement. Or, and like, we still can't picture what it's going to be like once we have the new things. So, yeah, I'm not sure that, that that's borne out in practice. Yeah. At least I, I rarely see it in practice. Maybe some my maybe s- someone out there is doing it well. <laughs> my sense is from having worked on various client projects at Thoughtbot and like seen other teams, it d- it didn't really feel like we were ever really behind a deadline. So it'd be like, okay, we have to launch this on December first, but we would only agree to those deadlines when it was like, okay, we have to we can we can flex on certain things. Like if you have a hard deadline, that's we can hit hard deadlines, but we have to be able to, to chop stuff out and get at the essential core to hit those deadlines because it's so hard to predict where we'll be by then. I don't ever remember someone being like, oh man, we really needed this by this date and we're three weeks past it and we're not even close. But there were definitely times where it was like, oh, we had to hit this date. And so there was stuff we wanted to get in there, but we didn't. But that's you know usually okay. And I think that's where... That's the big point about the mutable requirements thing is like... Um, you know, separate the core from the periphery is what Ryan says and figure out what, what's the essence of this feature and what's, what are the things that like maybe made it into a spec and are kind of like suggestions on how to implement it, but aren't really necessarily required to produce at least a minimum viable feature. So if you give teams the power to, uh, to redefine the scope, then the theory that Basecamp has, and I think they've seen this borne out in practice is that you can pretty much produce a minimum viable feature of anything in six weeks. So, so like once you've committed to doing it, that's that's your only deadline is like get something, get the kernel of this feature at least completed in a six week cycle, and then you can always circle back, add it to ne- to your next cycle, and add more to it. But the key is like, we ha- you have six weeks. You're free to have mutable, you know, like hammer down your scope as much as possible and as much as you need to to get it done. And that's really the driving factor. Mm. That's a good topic. Yeah. This one was a helpful one. Got just gets me thinking about about ways to, to structure cycles and cadence and, and all that. One other one that I want to highlight as I've been kind of researching how teams structure their work is um, Spotify. So they this is actually a few years old, but they have a two-part post where they have like a nice 10 minute video on each post outlining how they structure their teams, how they structure their work. They have an interesting concept. I'm not sure who actually invented it, if it was them or at least the nomenclature, but, but they call basically their teams are squads and they're cross-functional teams, which I think I'm, I'm a big fan of slicing vertically in the stack, you know, where you, you don't have, you don't have like a team of designers and a team of rails engineers and they have to work with each other to get things done. Like I would prefer the team to be assembled of a designer and programmers and whoever's required to actually ship the feature, right? Yep. One of the challenges we've been thinking through is like a lot of features these days with Drip need to scale. And our scaling challenges are, a lot of them are kind of beyond the scope of what a, you know, typical like full stack Rails engineer like their zone of genius, right? So sure, we have sure. we have some folks on the team who are like distributed systems engineers and and are deep in those technologies and have built large scale systems. And so it would be great to have that um, that knowledge represented on teams that are building new features. But um, I think the challenge comes in like 
you know, now we have an engineering manager of our platform team, essentially, who also has similar scaling experience. And so how do we how do we work with like our, our feature building teams and get cross-functional knowledge from our platform scaling ops team? And like what parts of that team do we just consider a shared resource that it's an independent team? And what what members of that team will like assemble teams with people from our feature building teams and people from our platform team to to come together to build features and diving into the way Spotify does it they uh, one of the interesting things that they highlight is that you know you can think of a squad as a vertical cross-functional team and then they call it a chapter when you look across you slice the other direction and you look at the roles that people have and people are actually their their manager is basically the lead of their chapter so if you have, say, two teams and there's a hardcore like ops scaling engineer on each of those teams, then those ops people would be in an ops and scaling chapter and they'd be managed by a ops and scaling manager. So that's, I think, potentially the right direction for us is like thinking about we have these different layers of the stack and, you know, the people who are on the heavy on the back end ops scaling side are kind of managed by one team and kind of work together, but then they split off into independent cross-functional teams to actually ship features. Mm. How many engineers do you have total these days? Um, I think we're around like 15. So not not huge by any stretch. Not crazy, yeah. Could you have pictured this day when you started? Did you think you'd ever <laughs> get here? When it was like you typing Rails new? Um, it, it, no, I couldn't have, I couldn't have pictured what it would look like. Did you ever fantasize about this point? We're like, oh man, maybe one day we'll be a huge team or did that not even like, did you indulge in that? Um, not really. I can't recall. Mm-hmm. Things are always messier and more complicated in practice than they are in your head. So <laughs> yeah, I laugh that like there's like Spotify is a team of a thousand engineers and they're talking about this process. So it may be way Jesus. overkill to even seriously. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my yeah. God. So <laughs> they they send you music over the internet, right? I know. I know. A thousand engineers? Or at least a thousand in their product delivery. I don't know if it's that includes product managers and designers and all that, but yeah, I think they the, the number a thousand was floated in their in their video. That sounds um, insane to me. Yeah. I can't even believe that. So by comparison, like maybe I'm way overthinking this and might be foolish to even be looking at a, a team of a thousand and look at their practices, but the same time like all the leadership at drip is always thinking about optimizing process and sure um or you just need to hire 985 more people into the dev <laughs> team maybe that's the secret <laughs> and then you'll have the perfect process to assign them to things yeah i mean spotify Perhaps. just plays music you guys send all kinds of email you have workflows you're building an email builder you need at least i mean hire at least 200 engineers just to get going you know <laughs> I know, and I can't even imagine. Have you? What's the largest engineering organization you've been in? Uh, uh, well, okay. So I, I worked at my first programming job was at a medical software company. So we made uh, software for hospitals, and it was like the whole suite of tools. Meaning, like you would buy this package, and it was like your accounting department, your doctors would order medications, your pharmacy would like every piece of software that you'd use in a hospital. And I think that whole company was like. I want to say like maybe 2,000 people and probably 600 programmers, probably somewhere in that range. Wow. Were there like a bunch of small teams then? Or were you on like... It was split up by product, basically. 
So it's like I was on the team. It was called order entry. It was like you know the thing that that people would use to order medications and procedures and things like that. I have trouble fathoming even how that, and even like you think of like the Facebooks of the world, where there's theoretically. I mean, I know they have a large monolith, and they maybe they have other services too. But at the core of Facebook is this large monolith, and that literally thousands of engineers. Like, how are they possibly coordinating that work? How it's kind of mind blowing. How indeed? <laughs> it's kind of mind blowing. Yeah. How do you make progress with that many people? Can't we just get rid of half these people and still move about as fast because we have less communication requirements now? Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's one of the advantages of being small is like, you know, when our first nine months when it was literally just me coding, they, the only communication barrier was from one side of my brain to the other, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and between mm-hmm. me and Rob. So things yep. were lightning fast in terms of like... I was crazy productive just getting the MVP of the product built. And then when we were a small team, we were all sitting in an office and still like communication was lightning fast. Um, We were competing against companies that had hundreds of engineers and getting close to feature parity with those, those organizations. Yeah. How, how does that work? How do you get to that point where like, you're suddenly like, okay, now we have a hundred engineers. I guess you just sort of don't notice that you're slowing down over, like they are slowing down, right? Like, you kind of have to be just because of the communication overhead. It's probably hard to to say what's to blame, whether it's the size of the team or the like, just the the age of the code base. You know, because legacy slows you down too. Even if you didn't, even if you're not adding more people, you you do slow down gradually over time as you're as you get locked into your own legacy. Unless you do something like Basecamp and rewrite your product, you know, and that opens you up to going greenfield again. Um, I feel like I want to crack that nut. Like, like, how can we proactively never slow down to the point where we we've seen a number of our competitors slow down significantly, where they can it appears they can hardly get anything shipped, and that's when you're vulnerable. You know, totally. I haven't seen that from the inside. Like, what that's like. I feel like it must be the case that you reach a thing where the increment or the marginal improvement in productivity with adding a person declines over time, and sometimes is probably negative. If we were trying to get a Rails app off the ground and you said, okay, let's do it with a team of two. No, wait, four. No, wait, 16. Eventually, like like adding a 17th person is like, this is make, we're going to go slower because of this. This will make it hard. Like even just dividing the work among this many people will take so much time that it's a net negative. How do you detect that and prevent it? From what I've seen, I think one of the main things you can do is hire slowly. But I think that's difficult if you have a mandate to build out a team fast, which fortunately we don't have arbitrary mandates like that. Um, we've talked to some some like engineering leadership type folks who have told us stories about like, yeah, I started with this this startup within this large company, and you know we were building out our MVP and our product, and within nine months we staffed up to 100 engineers, and I'm like. I don't know how you can possibly, I mean, and they, they've said like we had to, we had to drop our standards. We had to, um, you know, it was basically a full-time job for two people, just nonstop hiring. I don't know how you can possibly maintain culture. You can, how can you maintain? Um, and why is that well, good? What does that let you do? Like what, what can you do with a hundred people that you couldn't do with like 30 really good people? Yeah. Or 20. And that's what, you know, Basecamp has proven that like uh, they're, this far into it, wildly successful business by any measure. And they only have, I think, a team of 50. And I don't know how many of those are engineers, maybe 20 or something. So yeah, I don't think you have to continue 
growing your team to continue growing your revenue and your business. It's interesting to to push back against the notion that like we're big now, we have funding now, we need to scale up dramatically. I think that may be the, that may be the right choice for your business and maybe if, you know, if you really need to do that much work in parallel, but it's not safe to assume that that's the right choice. Hmm. It sounds like consulting at that point. Like if you have to keep hiring people to grow revenue, then like just go sell your time. Yeah. Right. You got me fired up. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the I think the key the other key is that the companies that are doing it successfully are always reevaluating their processes. What got you to your point today will not necessarily get you to the next milestone. And so that's what I'm trying to be is really um, thoughtful about this. And even though we're like only adding a few engineers every couple of months, um, I think it's still worth reevaluating. Like, are we reaching a breaking point? Is is this becoming? Is this team size becoming too unwieldy? Now we need to split off. And what's the best way to do that? And I think it's a worthwhile exercise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I think that introspection is is huge. It's crucial. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, shall we wrap it up? Yeah, let's wrap it. Okay. If you'd like to access the show notes for this episode, you can go to artofproductpodcast.com. Thanks for listening. See ya. I'm not hitting stop. All right. <laughs> I'm just going straight to postlude. I think we should call it the post the postlude. Yeah, we got a lot of love for that on Twitter, man. Lots of love. I also, I also had people come up to me and say, um, I thought you had just forgotten to hit stop. <laughs> and I was all set to like reach out to you on Twitter, and be like, "Oh my God, you accidentally released an episode, and it's it's got your private thoughts on it." I love which that. I think is is awesome. I did <laughs> that too. is like, exactly I like that. what I want to have. <laughs> yeah, I wanted the drama. It's good stuff. Yeah. yeah. No, I think we should. I think we should keep the segment. I was also like realizing last night. I was like, I'm looking forward to recording the podcast more, knowing that we're going to do this bit. Yeah, like it yeah, just made it totally. more interesting to me. One thought I had is that um, I think it's worth looking at our download numbers um, to make sure that the longer episode time does not Mm. harm, um, which then, I mean, I guess the alternative would be like, we just literally split the file into two. If, if that becomes a hurdle potentially, you know? Um, Sure. Yep. So you think people might like look at it and be like, Oh, that looks too long. Basically. I'm not going to, yeah. I mean, I, I've tended to, I tend to like um, burn out faster on podcasts that uh, are like our, plus length because yeah. i just feel like i don't ha- quite have time to listen to that you know that's fair yeah it might be worth splitting it because of that it's not a bad reason but maybe we could, we could probably look at the data and see what you know yeah let's keep an eye on that it's on, it's too early to tell <clears throat> yeah the last episode 25 came out recently so i can't tell what the total downloads are gonna be on that yeah yeah but yeah just a thought that crossed my mind no that's a good idea yeah. um Oh, so um, Advent of Code is starting up. Did you see that? No, what's that? Are you aware of that? So Advent of Code is um, a programming competition mm-hmm. uh, that start is runs in December, and okay. they release one challenge every day. Mm. Uh, and it's technically like a race, like whoever mm-hmm. can get the solution the fastest, like gets on mm-hmm. the leaderboard or points or something. Um, I think a lot of people don't treat it as a race; they just treat it as like interesting programming puzzles. Mm-hmm. So um, I've been feeling the itch to write some more code because I haven't in a while. Yeah, uh, and uh, I think I'm going to try to tackle some of these with Elm and maybe a little bit of closure too. Nice. So you you pick your you get to pick your language of choice to 
Yeah, they're the just challenge? they're just agnostic puzzles, and uh, they basically just ask you to to solve. I don't know actually how you prove you solved a thing yet. I haven't actually done one. Okay, but I know you can do it with whatever language you want. Yeah, that sounds fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to doing some of those. Just like getting up this morning and being like, "Oh, like I'm gonna write some code today." It's like, oh wow, mm-hmm. that sounds that sounds fun mm-hmm. instead of just like you know less fun. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, have you? Do you have any other? So like you don't have any side projects going on right now on code? Not really. So I'm uh, I'm trying to figure out so no coding side projects, no. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to figure out what to do next. Like so the code quality challenge wraps up. Oh, I just activated Alexa. Alexa, stop. <laughs> this is great radio. Oh, Alexa, stop. <laughs> she she's a little too sensitive. Yeah. Um uh yeah, so I'm feeling that itch. So like, all right, I want to build a thing. Um, uh, or like make a product or launch a thing or something. Like I'm getting... It's, it's time. The, yep. the challenge wraps up next week. And mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, I can kick off another cohort of that. And now the mm-hmm. challenges are basically all written, which is cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but like, I want to I wanna make a thing. Yeah. I don't know what. Yeah. So, I mean, so you could... Are you like itching to do SaaS? Or is like you're not sure what... I I am a little bit I guess like I, yeah. I'm I'm I don't know I'm trying to decide like my immediate audience and opportunity is certainly in another educational thing mm-hmm. like now I have this list of people that have bought a thing from me and a list of people that have gone through the challenge and so it's like there's probably you know a, a decent amount of money just awaiting an excuse to uh, spend <laughs> it right yeah um so that's tempting yeah um, but also. I don't know. I mean, I miss software. Mm-hmm. And I just like, I feel like I have this skill set or like I've built SaaS apps. I've made subscription sites. I am pretty, pretty okay at it. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like I'm not using those skills. And like mm-hmm. maybe there's a thing in here somewhere that I'm just not getting to. Yeah. It would be nice. Like it'd be ideal to leverage the audience, you, the momentum you've built up around your recent educational products. Um, but I don't know if there's a, I don't know if there's an interesting enough piece of software along those lines that you would want mm-hmm. to tackle. You know. Yeah, that's true. Um, it's tough to make software for developers. Yeah. Um, yeah. I don't know. Although, it's, it's still very, go ahead. <laughs> I've been so I, I tend to consume a lot more podcasts when I'm traveling, and uh-huh. I've been I've been diving th- into the Acquired podcast. Uh, have you heard of it? Mm-mm. So it's just these two hosts that talk about uh, company acquisitions, IPOs, and um, yeah, I think that's the main the main thing, like private company acquisitions and IPOs, and. Um, I feel like I, I caught some early episodes of it and it was pretty decent. And then I've been listening to more recent episodes and they're really, really fascinating. Um, Mm. I think they're, they're getting better over time and, um, they dove into the Atlassian IPO, which Atlassian Mm. is one of the, you know, the kind of the OG new wave of SaaS companies, um, got in real early 2003, 2004. Um, but my gosh, they're, what an amazing company that they've built and i never realized quite realized that you know i see them they're they've built jira confluence 
they acquired Bitbucket, they acquired Trello. So I see them like hmm. appearing to kill it in the market. But um, in this episode, they kind of dove into the fundamentals of the business. They were bootstrapped all the way up until IPO, basically. Um, hmm. And they they sold, they had like two, two rounds where they sold shares to um, institutional investors, but it was purely secondary market. So just taking money off the table for mm-hmm. founders and option holders. And like leading up to their IPO, I think they were throwing off like a hundred million in free cash flow. And they mm. never raised a dime. Mm. Like and there's a company all about developer tools. So it's yeah, fascinating no. that like, you know, they're a major incumbent, but I think it just goes it just is another data point that like it is possible and and the other the other thing is they don't have any sales people. Like that was their whole mm. model because they were bootstrapped. They couldn't really afford the investment in a sales team. So it's like, all mm-hmm. right, we're just going to do it purely on marketing and letting the product have the level of quality it needs to sell itself. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So super inspirational. Obviously, like okay. So you think I should found Atlassian? <laughs> there you go. Take down Jira. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I that probably would like. I think there's there's a ton of niches in there, right? Yeah, like there are probably a lot of people listening to this podcast who have to use Jira, who hate it, who if yeah. had a better option could might switch to it. Yeah, like there's there's always the build another project management tool, but for a small niche right. angle, I think that that can work. It's interesting to me that like there's um, I've just been going through another round of trying of reevaluating our tooling, and I'm trying mm-hmm. I try to like think about process first and then the tooling is there to support it and not think about like driving process by the tools chosen, you know, mm. which mm-hmm. is tempting to do. Like you see a shiny sure. new tool and you're like, I want to use that for my process, but you got to make sure you got your process nailed down first and then, and then pick the right tool to support it. Right. Mm-hmm. But, um, even now, like I'm struggling to find, uh, a really, well, cause I, I don't like heavy weight and I think Jira to me, I, I haven't really used Jira in any like, major capacity but i just feel like it's not lightweight (laughs) so yeah but then there's like things like trello that are maybe a little too lightweight like me like there's some Mm -hmm. issues with that too so i'm like trying to find something in the sweet spot and it's actually not that easy don't you want something that's like built like just like on top of uh, github issues with a little bit more structure well that's the funny thing um i feel like we're we're actually maybe outgrowing code tree a bit interesting um, hmm. and it, it was, it was great when we were a small team. Um, yep. but I'm now seeing kind of the, the breaking points of that. It's hard to, the biggest problem is it's hard to visualize the state of the world. Like we, uh, it was great when we had, we were basically one giant team or we weren't giant, mm-hmm. but we were, we were basically one team. So we mm-hmm. could see everyone, every developer's queue. Most, th- most tasks were basically independent work, but now these days, a majority of things are cross-functional. Um, and there's a lot of things going on concurrently. So getting like being able to maintain the set of priorities, um, so that everyone knows what they need to be working on and also putting things in a time bound fashion in some kind of cycle. And like all these things that we want to do is pretty difficult to, to accomplish in code tree. Mm-hmm. So. Hmm. Interesting. If I still owned it, I would probably be like, uh, iterating on it and figure out how to make it work for uh larger teams <laughs> right <laughs> but, 
That's what happens when you sell your baby, though, I guess. Yeah, I know. No, it's somebody else's roadmap. Mm-hmm. I had a cool thing happen. Um, somebody posted uh, a link to my course on the Rails subreddit, mm-hmm. which is nice. Um, yeah. And I, like, I, I saw that thread. And I was like, oh, boy. And like, I was like, because you never like people on the internet comment, Alexa, what are you doing? What did you hear <laughs> that you thought was you? Cancel. <laughs> Jesus. I didn't even hear um, you say anything remotely similar to Alexa. I, that's, that's how I feel. But anyway, um, so I like, I saw that and there's already like, there were like 15 comments on the, on the thing when I got there and I was like, mm-hmm. oh boy. Uh, and I read <laughs> through all of them and they were basically all really positive. Wow. Which was like really gratifying. Congrats. Yeah. All positive internet comments. This is uh, amazing. Yeah. There was like one guy that like had a critique of one thing I said in a video. It's like, oh, okay, fine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but uh, overall, it was really pretty glowing, which was wonderful. And so I like dropped in and was like, hey, like, here's a discount code. And um, thanks for the, the kind words. That's cool. That was, was it? Yeah. Um, I was, I'm always uh, like reminded how small a lot of these communities are. Like the Ruby community has its has its people who it's it's household names for people who are in the community but was this like um a lot of just people you've never heard of just people random oh yeah developers yep. that's mm-hmm. cool yeah and it was nice like previous sales day like previous like the day before i sold like 300 dollars or three sales worth of the product mm-hmm. and then like yesterday was 11 so it was just like nice little bump yeah um nice. it's 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 cool it, it makes me realize like why didn't I mean maybe I, it would this would be frowned on, but like why didn't I post this on the Rails subreddit? Hmm. Like how many like low hanging fruit yeah. things are there like that? Where it's like why didn't you just like put it over here so more people can find it? Um, right. I think there's actually still a lot of marketing yeah. juice or marketing effort that could be put into the thing I've already made. Like my my yeah. my tendency is to move on to the next thing, but it's like have you actually really put the the, the worthwhile work into this one? And the answer is probably right. probably not quite. Yeah. Add that to a playbook somewhere for future reference. <laughs> mm-hmm. Definitely, or or just like go do it. Yeah, just spend the time. Were you on? Uh, more, were you on Product Hunt at all? Do you know? No. Yeah, that's a uh, Product Hunt. I don't understand. It's like this is like one of those sites I never got into. Yeah, you just like post your stuff on there. It's like I don't know. Well, I, it was. I guess I should. It, it's one of those things where um, there was like arbitrage oppor- opportunities in the beginning. Like when, around the time I was launching Code Tree was like early, early days for Product Hunt, right when they started to get traction, but it was still pretty nascent. And um, I think I, I think someone else actually posted it on there, but it was like featured on the main list because there were there were just not that many um, things being posted on a daily basis. So most things made mm-hmm. it onto like the homepage for that day, mm-hmm. um, and that was cool. It got like got a, I got a fair bump out of that. I can't remember what how many dollars it actually translated into, but it was. It was something. Okay. Um, okay. But I think these days it's really difficult to like, I think there's hacks you can do. Like there are people who are in the inner circle and if they upvote it or they do something, then that like almost guarantees it appears on the homepage. But it's really, I think it's really difficult now to get there because, and I, I don't fault them for that. Like they probably have hundreds and hundreds of postings every day and they can't feature. Them oh all. yeah. Yeah. So. It's probably worth doing whatever the, the quick submission thing is to it i suppose yeah it's hard to know how like various channels are going to perform until you actually give them a shot mm-hmm. yep. yeah yeah hmm. okay that's probably worth doing um uh i think i found a drip bug by the way oh no 
Don't worry. Like there are very few drip bugs that I've ever run into. Like I know I bring them to you, but it's not that I have a negative perception. It's just I'm good at finding edge cases because I'm a a programmer. You're a programmer. Do you want to hear it? Yeah. What's happening? All right. So when I send out the challenge uh, or the exercise for the code quality thing, I, mm-hmm. I'm, do, I'm using broadcasts. Um, and so I duplicate a broadcast every time. Mm-hmm. And I found that if I duplicate a broadcast mm-hmm. and then edit the email and then like move to the next step where I go to like the settings tab, basically, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then go back to the email, mm-hmm. I see the email from the original thing that I duplicated. Oh, interesting. But is if you refresh the page, does it? If I uh, it com- if I refresh the page, it comes. It works, I believe. Okay. Like I see, I see the new one. I think it's just a caching thing, or like something's not triggering a cache refresh or something. Okay. That's Good my guess know. from the outside. Yeah. And I I saw it in a different. I saw what felt like the same bug in, in a slightly different angle the other night. I can't remember what it was. This it reminds on the, me on the preview tab. Yeah, I went to the preview tab for something, and it was also the old email. Something oh, like interesting. Okay. This reminds me of this weird, um, we've been, I think we finally have a comprehensive like fix in place for it. This weird bug where if you, I think it at least happens in Chrome, not sure about other browsers. If you make an Ajax request, like, so the page loads and if it does an Ajax request to like the same URL, but with a JSON content type to fetch, like presuming that you have like a JSON route, at the same the same URL, but one that serves up JSON that has some like additional lazy loaded content or whatever. Mm-hmm. If you do that, and then you click something in the browser, and then you hit back, it spits out the JSON, the raw oh, JSON no. on the page, because Ooh, it basically that's... overwrites the browser cache for that page. Uh, like it doesn't it doesn't detect the fact that this is JSON and not HTML, and it shouldn't overwrite the cache. And I think mm-hmm. this bug has been. I mean, I I consider it a bug, but I think it's been the behavior of Chrome for years huh. and manifest. It's not a good look. <laughs> yeah. Like all of a sudden, bam, a bunch of JSON, like, uh, it broke a lot. I guess. Right. Yeah. And then like, you know, the uninitiated user who doesn't know what JSON is. Think that thinks that the app is horribly broken or that they, you know, we have some major bug or something. It's like, no, no, it's just refresh the page, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <clears throat> it's great. As usual, refresh, like turn it off and on again. And yeah. It'll work. <laughs> yeah. State management is hard. Yeah. Totally. Hmm. hmm. Well, All right. noted. We'll get right on that. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> good. Give it to one of your 600 or 1,000 engineers. Yeah. <laughs> Add it to, put it in the queue of the uh, 147 person bug fixing team. Yeah. I will. That can't be right. No one can have a th- I, I, no one can have a thousand engineers. That's that doesn't work. I'm, I'm just gonna say it right now. I mean, these companies like Uber. I think Uber has like two thousand or something. I'm sure it's changing every week. Yeah, I don't know. It's, I'm. I want to. I want to know more. Yeah, and like I, I also wonder if, um, like I've talked, I've I've heard a lot of experiences from experienced engineering leaders who have gone whole hog into service oriented architecture. Um, and a lot of times the motivation for that is just purely so that you can have a team who takes ownership of this specific slice. And then there's APIs that are the contracts between different teams. But then Mm -hmm. there's so many, there's so much, uh, so many negatives that come with SOA where you have, you know, now method calls are HTTP calls with latency and, 
how do you deploy a change to one thing and make sure you don't break downstream things. And totally. it's like all this complexity. And, um, but like that, I feel like that's almost the de facto in the industry. It's like, we'll just go SOA and then you can scale out infinitely because you just break everything into hundreds or thousands of microservices. And it's like, um, <laughs> uh, I don't envision us ever doing that. So <laughs> yeah, that would scare me a lot. Yeah. All right. I think we should wrap up. Yeah, let's do it. Good talking to you. You too, man. Good secret podcast too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Alrighty. Uh, same time next week. Uh, yeah, let's do it. Oh, well All actually right. it'll be Thursday. I, we're recording on a Friday and it'll, yeah, yeah I'm sorry. Not same time, here. but the usual time. Yeah. Perfect. Alrighty. All right. Talk to you man. next time. Later. Yeah,